the architects and designers of today will become the leaders and managers of tomorrow. And they need to be exposed, they need to study, and they need to learn. And sometimes it's not only by doing, we really need to raise awareness that design education must continue and must bridge to these other facets. Because a lot of times, this process of a project that kind of goes beyond just the design of the project itself, but really the whole spectrum that it takes in order to preposition for a project, in order to create a project proposal, to assemble a team, to track it, to budget, to manage the dynamics of clients, of city agencies, of stakeholders. All of this is really important exposure that designers need to have very early on. And often in times, this part is it's kept is not as transparent to entry levels and to younger generations. So we really must think of this younger generation as the generation of tomorrow. They need to learn from a very young age so that tomorrow when they get to places of leadership and places of decision making, they are well equipped to make decisions that will value our profession, that will break with this cycle of devaluation in which we are always aiming towards the next deadline and leaving a strategy, leaving these other important facets for when we have time. Welcome everyone to Section Cut, our conference dedicated to the stories of leaders who are innovating on practice operations. My name is Sylvia Lee, and I am the Community Marketing Manager here at Manograph. Let's get started by welcoming our first guest, Lorena Galvo. Lorena is the co-founder of Defining Design Practice, an educational platform that aims to redefine how design education prepares professionals for the industry. In this session, Lorena is going to help us rethink scalability, the different services a design professional can provide, what a sales funnel can look like, where the design education gap lies, and what we can do to fulfill it. Lorena, welcome to our Section Cut Wall stage. How are you doing Hi. today? Hi, everyone. Thank you first for being here. Sylvia, thank you so much for the handoff and the whole monograph team for this stage. Very excited to be here. Such We're very a, excited to have such you a here. a symbolic day with Women's Day being today as well. So. Today, we're going to be speaking about defining change within the design industry. I know that if you're here, you're probably conscious that our industry is changing, our world is changing, and we must be talking about this change. So Monograph gave me this prompt to come here today and speak about change within the industry. The industry is changing faster than ever before, and it starts with us. What direction are you taking your firm? I thought this was really exciting and just the perfect fit because I'm going through this process of change myself. And this is a little bit of what we're going to be speaking about today. Just before we dive in, happy to introduce myself. My name is Lorena Galvão. I'm a co-founder of Defining Design Practice. I'm trained in architecture and urban design, but I have a special focus and a special interest in the intersection of business and design. Just growing up, business and entrepreneurship was always rooted in my family. And when I went to school for architecture, it wasn't different. I decided to go to a school where all their programs had a business core, business minor attached to it. So in all of my experience in the design and architecture industry, even before working in business development per se, always involved a lot of my managerial 
and my communication skills. My trajectory, I've worked across three different continents in some firms such as Data IE in Spain, Plays in China, IBI Group, and lastly, Scape. And I've also worked as a consultant to many design practices on business development, project communications, and served as a teaching in at Columbia GSAP. And so the places that I've lived, the cultures that I've observed, the researches and projects that I've developed, the awards that I've won, they all helped shape who I am and gave me important professional abilities, professional skills. And I like to summarize them as my ability to adapt. So as we jump in, I also wanted to share here today this important report by Monograph and on the state of burnout in architecture industry. I know that many of you must be familiar with the overwork that always happens in our industry, but I think 96.9% is still an astonishing number and we must take that into consideration. Me, myself, many times I felt part of this statistics. I don't know if anyone here also feels or felt part of the statistics. Please drop in the chat so I don't feel alone. But I think those are important things to talk about and to, as we're here talking about change and defining what's this change that we want to see, that is important to understand what are the causes of this burnout and how we can start to address it. And I also wanted to point out here some of the causes linked to burnout. First, the working overtime, the overload, things that we're very familiar with, inefficient workflows and processes, this idea of this unrealistic deadlines, we're always chasing the next deadlines, and this unrealistic expectations. And lastly, this feeling of feeling disengaged from their job. I think a lot of us at times try to understand how is it that the task that we're doing really influences on this larger picture? How does it impact the communities that we work on? And how does it fulfill our purpose? And I know that while a lot of people link burnout to this idea of improving project management and practice, and I agree with that, I think it kind of goes beyond that. And to me, Something that is very important is that we start to grasp and start to think about this relationship between time and impact. We, as a profession and as an industry that sells service, we are a lot of times selling our time as well. And we need to start being smart with that because time is finite and is the most precious resource that we have. So as a firm and in order to be value, in order to be driving change within our firm, we need to always be thinking about ways that we start to gain time instead of selling it. So for firms that have their business around largely their product being selling time, we need to really change this mindset, shift this paradigm from a paradigm that you are no longer selling time, but instead you're selling value that we are no longer iterating excessively, sometimes without knowing what we're iterating for, but really taking the time to understand our clients and understanding the context in which we are operating. It is also about stop trying to reinventing the wheel. I know that we approach projects as unique projects, but how can we repurpose? How can we have a design process that is well-defined? so that we can optimize the work that we do and we can always be searching to improve instead of reinventing the wheel. 
And lastly, we need to also bridge intuition. I know that we tend to always operate through intuition, which is important. But in design, we also have the sense that we always need to learn by doing and to wing it. But we also need to bridge that with metrics, metrics that helps with our decision making, metrics that helps us measure the way we are performing as well. And in order to do that, in order to really shift this paradigm, in order to shift this mindset at defining design practice, we really see two gaps in which we must bridge, which we must act upon in order to shape an industry where burnout and undervalue is not the norm. So I'm going to be speaking to you about these two gaps today and how we've been driving change with these two gaps. The first one is the gap between design education and the skills needed in order to succeed in practice. I know that the base of design education is around technical skills and creativity, but often in times we don't learn entrepreneurship skills that actually allow us to create opportunities in order to market these skills. We need to expand the scope of architecture education, of design education. Design education also needs to be about building business acumen. How do you think of your business model? How do you sell more than projects? How do you sell more than time? How is it that you find the right projects for you, the client that is the right client to you and that will value your processes and value the work that you do? Also about communication and sales. How is it that we can impact and better communities if we don't learn how to communicate the trade-offs that our work involves, if we don't learn how to sell our work and how to control the narrative as well of what we're putting forward. Lastly, design education also needs to be about resource management. The management of time, the management of people, of processes, of tools to ensure that we can, yes, put forward a project that takes an idea from an idea realm into implementation on time, on budget, and while not forgetting to fulfill professional development and raising talent along the way. I love the comments here in the chat and I appreciate them. So keep them coming. A second gap that we see and that we're acting upon and is actually amplified by this gap between design education, the skills needed for practice, is really this lack of understanding between the design process ecosystem, the tasks related to design, and this larger context of project operations, practice operations, and the market in which practice operation is uh, placed. And this is really important because every time we start a project, we often in times speak about the analysis phase, right? Understanding the context in which you're operating, understanding sometimes the neighborhood, understanding the history of the site. But often in times we don't spend time actually understand the unbuilt context, the context in which you are practicing. Power dynamics, stakeholder dynamics, really understanding your client, spending time instead of just iterating and going on your process, we need to turn into our clients and really understand what are those contexts that are not tangible, that is not there to be seen. How can we learn from that in order to have a more productive process and a process that creates more value to everyone engaged in the process? 
The other thing that I wanted to talk about here, and I see it's very common in the design industry and that we also must think upon, is this idea of the generation of tomorrow. The architects and designers of today will become the leaders and managers of tomorrow. And they need to be exposed, they need to study, and they need to learn. And sometimes, not only by doing, we really need to raise awareness that design education must continue and must bridge to these other facets. Because a lot of times, this process of a project that kind of goes beyond just the design of the project itself, but really the whole spectrum that it takes in order to preposition for a project, in order to create a project proposal, to assemble a team, to track it, to budget, to manage the dynamics of clients, of city agencies, of stakeholders. All of this is really important exposure that designers need to have very early on. And often in times, this part is it's kept is not as transparent to entry levels and to younger generations. So we really must think of this younger generation as the generation of tomorrow. They need to learn from a very young age so that tomorrow when they get to places of leadership and places of decision making, they are well equipped to make decisions that will value our profession, that will break with this cycle of devaluation in which we are always aiming towards the next deadline and leaving a strategy, leaving these other important facets for when we have time. So we really see these gaps as important gaps that we need to bridge in order to keep adapting to changing times. And we see that we can bridge these gaps with both tools and techniques. And while there are many amazing firms working both tools and techniques, I can mention Monograph as one of these tools that really enable us to better practice. We really see DD in this realm of techniques, a place where you can go and learn about techniques. When we founded Defining Design Practice, or DDP in short, we conceptualized Defining Design Practice as this online knowledge sharing community focused on bridging the gap between traditional design education and the skills needed to succeed in practice. We really see design not only as this little tip that you see here on the iceberg, but really as all these other facets that stands behind the waterline, below the waterline, and really allows you to build a design that will be visible, a design that will impact communities. You can see here all the little facets, and we can speak a little bit more about them. But all of our programs build on two knowledge pillars, one being the business of design and the other about design technology. We see business of design as everything that encompasses strategy, development, and operations, and technology, design technology really as a means in which we can better our workflows, in which we can optimize the work that we do, and which we can automate processes that will allow us to then develop further the work that we do and not always be reinventing the wheel. Our model also builds and has these stairs of different products, of different services, but it goes all the way from free resources to courses in which you can learn on your own pace about a specific subject to a very close contact consultancy or in your case specific, where you also have an opportunity to connect with other people and other in a community of like-minded professionals. I think in our profession, we really lack this community. I love how Monograph positioned section cut because 
we often have conferences and we often have communities that speak about the buildings, about the work that we put forward, but often in times we lack the communities that actually talk about how do we grow, how do you put forward this work, and what are all the other companies, what are all the other initiatives that enables us to become a better industry. So since we were conceptualizing defining design practice, for both my uh, partner and I, it was very important that we steered away from this concept of selling time and really bridging it and really changing our mindset to this concept of selling impact, of selling knowledge, of selling community, and of selling this idea that we always need to be thinking of the generation of tomorrow and also how the world is changing. And I also wanted to bring here just some examples, examples that are inspiring to me, examples of how we can adapt, examples of how other firms have been doing it, and I know that we're all always speaking about change, but what is it that it is changing? And to me, a few important aspects, few important fronts of change that is happening and that we must always be conscious about is the forms of consumption. The forms of consumption have changed the way that we consume, the way that we communicate and the channels of these communications have changed. And as well as technology is always evolving and is always providing us tools in which we can use to better adapt. So the first example I wanted to bring here, and you might be familiar with this building, the Chenzhen Library in China, a project by MVRDV. And I wanted to bring this example here as an example of a firm that has really been working on understanding this communication shift communication that in the design field just until a couple of decades ago was mainly done and mainly held by architecture crits, by architecture journalists, and today with social media and with this content creation economy has really democratized the way that we can communicate, the way that we can shape our narrative, and the visibility and reach that our projects have. I wanted to share this specific project here because listening to a very enlightening lecture by John Parner MV at MVRDV. He mentioned how MVRDV was able to scale their practice and increase their practice in 50 people after this building went viral. I think that is mind-blowing statistics. The other statistics that they mentioned, and it's very interesting to me, is after they opened their market hall in Rotterdam, they were able to expand by 100 people because they also did a very intensive work, very extensive work with their communications. They even understood how the narrative behind their building is being put forward in so many different fronts, and they would engage even the people. And VRDV will be with Monograph next week, guys. So you should definitely watch that. It was a very enlightening experience to be able to hear from John. But anyway, in their market hall in Rotterdam, after that project, they were also able to scale 100 people in their operations. And they did that because they paid attention to all of the communication that they done through their project on top of the design that they put forward. They even did tours so that they could instruct tour guides on how to communicate on how the project was done and how the project was thought out. 
And I thought this is very interesting because often in times we spend a lot of time designing our building and thinking about everything that we are considering in order to put the building forward. But often in times we forget or we don't pay as much attention as to the narrative that is being told about our projects and by who that narrative is being communicated. The other example that I wanted to bring here is an example around building your business model and really building your business model by understanding and by incorporating, leveraging a multifaceted approach to design. So not only thinking about design as kind of this core, this kind of core concept of your business model, but also thinking how can you leverage in this case policy? How can you leverage technology? How can you leverage learnings from a production line and productization in order to incorporate to your business? In these two cases specifics here, I'm bringing two startups doing work around policy around productizing architecture, if you will, but leveraging the power of technology, one being cottage here. I think they're also speaking in a section cut tomorrow, so uh, make sure that you join that and ABR. As two examples of startups, they're really focusing on a niche problem, a very specific problem around housing shortage in California and developing a business around design that addressed that problem. So that can really, they can still generate multiple design ideas, but they use of technology in order to automate a lot of their processes so that they can spend some of their resources and some of their time in order to improve their product, in order to improve their business and other facets needed instead of always starting from scratch. Oh, there you go. Cottage is presenting today at 1 p.m. Please make sure you watch that one too. And last but not least, I also wanted to bring here this example of consumer awareness, how luxury fashion brands and retail brands in general have been expanding and also tapping into design and into architecture and real estate development and really holding a market share that once belonged to design and architecture industries. And I think this is a very important inflection point for us to start thinking how other firms have been able to capture market shares that once belonged to our discipline, right? And how we must adapt in order not to keep losing market share or what are the opportunities, what are the business development opportunities to collaborate. But what these brands do really well and something that we can learn from is that they are focused on consumer awareness and consumer and their marketing. So they really spend a lot of their time and a lot of their effort in understanding how our brain works, the psychology and the patterns behind their customers and really creating a brand that goes beyond the product that they provide, but a brand that is really around core values around a movement. So they go from a place in which they are no longer selling that specific product, but they're really selling something that is much larger, that kind of goes beyond that specific problem. And that allows them to really do this business in which we call ecosystem business. And you've probably seen a lot of firms like in tech or in fashion, but even sometimes, as you mentioned, Veronica mentioned here as artists and architects, to really work in an ecosystem in which they're no longer selling their specific product, 
but they're selling many different products in many different fronts, but that still speaks to their target customer. They have this customer loyalty. They have these repeated customers and that happens all the time. And if you stop to see, you probably already saw some graphs around that. Amazon, Facebook, all these companies also do that. They, you captivate your client and then you can provide many different services. So how can we start to learn about what these companies are doing? How can we start to incorporate that into architecture? Because our industry must learn to adapt and we must look into other fields so that we can learn and leverage what they're doing. We must also learn beyond design, especially when it comes to smaller firms. I know that we're the target audience here. We included having a strategy and solving a niche problem can really help to set us apart. I know that in the design industry, you're always focused on the next deadline and on the next thing. But if we really stop first and do the homework inwards in our practice, that can really help us to gain a specific uh, market share, a specific client, really understand what matters to our client. Sometimes it's much more important than really be looking always to the next deadline. And a little bit stretching out of the design firm, the design industry, I really wanted to bring here this example between Netflix and Blockbusters, really an example of adaptation and thriving on change. You might be familiar with that. But Netflix back in the early 2000s had a very similar business model as Blockbusters. And the main service was around delivering DVDs through mail. They understood really early on that that was not a business model that was competitive in the long terms with forms of consumption, with um, technology changing, and they decided to change as well. So that's when they decided to shift into the streaming platform that we know today. After they did that change, they started to gain a lot of a market share, a lot of clients. I am a client of Netflix. You probably are too. And they understood that even when their, eval their market evaluation was at the record high after they opened this streaming platform, they understood that they had serious competitions coming along. So in 2011, they decided to, instead of just reproducing other people's contents and titles, they decided to go ahead and produce their own content, produce their own productions. When they did that, their market value actually dropped by 80% and people were like, are you crazy? Why are you doing that? But I think being a business really needs exactly, Siri, exactly. But every business must always, must always be thinking forward. And sometimes that means that you need to make a leap, that you need to make a change, even when the general industry is not going on that direction. You need to make that leap. And the lesson here is that Netflix today, even with a lot of competition, and we all know what their competitors are, they still hold almost 50% of their market share. And when these other streaming companies started to be very resourceful, started to have a very competitive platform, and we draw their productions from the Netflix, Netflix platform, Netflix already had their own production and already had conquered their own market share, their own clients. So there is a lesson to be learned here. And the lesson that I wanted to leave you with here today is that we must adapt. We must always learn. And as leaders, 
we must always continue and think to how can we recycle, how can we transform, and how can we use change as really an opportunity to make our practices thrive. So to wrap up and to answer Monograph's prompt to me on how defining design practice is driving change within the industry, to me, I wanted to bring here three points that are very important. First being this bridging the gap between the design education and providing the skills that is needed for professionals to succeed in practice. Expanding really this notion of architecture beyond project-based, we need project-based firms and we also need firms that empower the firms that put projects forward to work and to better practice. And really, I think something that we always grasp with and really make that the center of our decision-making is trying to find this right equation between the time that we employ and the value and the impact that we create through each of our decisions and each of our processes. Okay, and I also wanted to bring here, just to sum up, how am I driving change personally? And I think to me is I'm always trying to tap on this ability to adapt, on this ability to keep learning, this ability to keep moving forward so that in the future, when I get to the future and this graph here, trying to illustrate that is when I look back, I want to be able to say, I'm glad that I took this leap. I'm glad that I did X, Y, and Z years ago. And so as we wrap up, we're here on time. I wanted to leave you and open the Q&A with the same prompt that I was asking. How are you defining change within the industry? And also, what are the gaps? What are the things that you're trying to bridge? What are the contexts that you're acting for this change? Thank you, Lorena. That was such a great presentation where you took um, insights from across the board and it's all really insightful. Like who doesn't know the example of Blockbuster and Netflix or who hasn't heard of that already? And there's a lot of classic ones that go along with that. Like Kodak used to have like the entire market, but then did they keep up afterwards? We have a question in the chat here um, from George. How do you redesign the customer experience to deliver value in a unique and accessible way? Thanks, George, for your question is, I think often in times in design, we try to solve too many problems. We try to really sometimes change the world with one project, or we want to change the world with our practice. And I think that often in times, and I was actually reading that the other day, that there is a difference between innovation and creating something, you know, from scratch. And I think that we really need to be more focused on what are the innovations, how we can learn from the way that people do things and solve one problem. So in this question, the customer experience, I think it really depends on what customer and what problem you're trying to solve for that specific customer, right? And I think sometimes when we're working in practice, we, you know, some practices don't want to specialize or some practice doesn't, don't want to find a target customer. And I think that's when you get lost because if you don't know who you're speaking to and if you don't know what problem you're trying to, to solve, it's often, it's really hard to really cater a customer experience that will really deliver value to that customer, if you know what I mean. And I also appreciate the part about controlling the narrative. The example of MVD, RVD was great because it's not just being controlling of the architecture in the end. They actually want to educate and enlighten the user to 
like enrich their experience. Actually, I love finding out about the process behind a building and why it exists and what dictates what I'm seeing and experiencing. So I think finding a way to share with that afterwards, it's not just the architecture you create, the space, you also create the experience inside of it. And they took it to that level in your example. I think architects, maybe we get lost in the project a little. We're working to accomplish so much and I know how much, like we just have to, at the very least, like getting a building built by code properly, it's not an easy job and now we have to Think of, design the experience on top of it and then share it to the user with how do you control all of that? But I've seen this in the chat. It does us a disservice if we don't share that information. Actually, as an example, promoting and creating this section cut event, half my time was spent getting a good event out there, but also the other half was getting it into as many people's um, screens as possible so that they can see this event. What's the point of creating an event if no one comes? So how can, can you, how do you find the balance, Lorena? And you know, Siri, sorry, um, I cut you in the end here. And I think to me, with the connection and really shaping this narrative and creating awareness of the work that we do, I think it just in general, we tend not to share the backstage, we tend not to share the process and just really like, you know, sometimes you still see the ribbon cutting of a building. And it seems like, you know, that's how you got there. But there is so much in the backstage and so much in the process that you can use to engage your clients, to engage your audience, to engage, you know, other professionals, inspire other professionals, and also teach, use that as a teaching experience. I want to bring an example. I follow you on Instagram. And yesterday I saw that you post some stories preparing for this event. And to me, it made me feel really great because I was doing a very similar thing preparing for this event. <laughs> And it was good to know, you know, that you're not alone and that there is that community there and everyone is working towards putting an event and everyone it's a professional, but we are also humans, right? And I think that we really connect on this human point. And I really think that architecture and design practice could really use a little bit more of this uh, human connection. I think that's kind of how you find the balance. I think we're all human beings trying to better the places that we live, the communities that we are within. And I think when we actually, um, you know, put ourselves out there a little bit more at this human level, we're able to connect. And I think we're able to be good leaders and to inspire both, you know, outside of our practice and inside of our practice with the teams that we work in. Because as you mentioned, it is a lot of work. It is a lot of work to make sure that buildings to code. There's a lot of work to manage a team to make sure that all of the joints are there, that the client is happy, that it meets all of the vision that a project have. But in order to do that, you really need a team. And I think finding this balance between this human connection and this sharing, it's really what makes a team succeed and what makes a practice a larger an industry succeed. I 100% agree on everything. I think the more that we can share, the more people see the value of the work we do and how many different hats that architects have to wear and be experts on and the time and the amount of care put into a project. Questions from Shadia Jaramillo. What, where do you think we should start when it comes to bridging the gap? The expectations vary on both ends. Emerging professionals believe they are going to design only. That's very true, the school mentality. And forget about the process of the industry. The profession expects newly graduates to know how to put a building together. 
Where is the balance and how do we achieve that? I think you spoke about that in the beginning about giving that transparency to the younger generations coming forward since they are the future. I will have to say, start visiting uh, Defining Design Practice, support our work. I think that it's a great gap that we're trying to bridge and that we're finding ways to build a community around it because as you mentioned, that is exactly the school mentality. And I think there's two ways that we can start to break that. One is by, you know, if you are within a firm, if you are within an organization, is to always give this space. If you're in a place of leadership, give opportunities to younger professionals to have exposure and make sure that this transparency is something that you built within your culture. I think that is a really good way of letting this younger generation understand that design is not only about, you know, the design of the building on paper or that construction, but you design so many things that go beyond the built, right? You design the process, you design your interaction of stakeholders, you need to buy stakeholder buy in. So I think as much as we speak about that really early on, it's really important. And then I think as design education, we always need to be advocating for design education to keep adapting. We can't be teaching our professionals the same way that we taught, you know, 50 years ago. The, the industry has changed and you really see that these people that have kind of this multifaceted experience, multifaceted understanding or interest that you really see them starting to succeed and starting to kind of have a little bit more visibility because as you mentioned, we need to wear many, many hats. And so the earlier that professionals have this understanding, I think it's just easier for us to create a culture in which we're learning from all these aspects. And let's be honest, it's not only design, right? I think today, in order to be uh, this kind of well-rounded professional, you really need to go beyond just your technical skills. One more question from Alicia Armbrister. We find so many individual entrepreneurs selling packages. There are countless designers doing similar offerings, essentially by selling their brand on Instagram. How does architecture grow without discounting to these practices? How can the process be divided or delivered so that you might readily have repeat clients or a series of works? I think in terms of repeat clients and things that you can repurpose, let's put it that way. I think when you specialize in a niche and you understand maybe it's a typology, maybe it's a location, maybe it is just a scale of projects or a mission, right? If you are a mission-driven practice in which your mission is perhaps, you know, building resilient communities or adapting to climate change, I think that gives you a pool of knowledge and a pool of understanding that you can use that throughout a series of projects. So I think finding your niche and really finding what is it that, you know, it's the core of your practice and the mission of your practice will really help you to create this base, this knowledge base and this process base and some of these standards that you can use in order to readapt. In terms of firms using Instagram to communicate their work, I think communication is a really big part of what we should be doing as well. I know that sometimes it's not easy or sometimes not comfortable. Sometimes it's not part of the skill set that we learn. To me, it's also something that it's it's not natural, but 
you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't know about defining design practice if I wasn't here today. And so I think using Instagram and using other communication channels, be it social media or whatever you feel comfortable, you don't need to be across all of them and you don't need to be doing what everyone else is doing. But you do need to find what is your communication channel, because in the end, we buy from people and we want to make sure that we're seeing, you know, the people and the teams behind the work that we're buying behind what is it that we're buying. And so I think these communication channels are just really an important way or important tool that we have to really communicate the work that we do. But the process of adapting to this new and changing industry, it's not easy and it requires a whole new set of skills, but they're important skills. And I feel that's how we keep developing and keep growing. And absolutely. And giving us ourselves the value of all the time that we have spent into it that you've touched upon before too. But we're at time now. Thank you so much, Lorena. Well, thank you everyone. Thank you, Sylvia. Thank you, Monograph team. Hey, it's Sylvia from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. Monograph is designed for architects by architects. Over 450 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial or sign up for a demo today at monograph.com. Find out what a practice operations platform like Monograph can do for your firm. Get started at monograph.com. Talk to you soon.